Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Syl Sobel and Jay Rosenstein, authors of Boxed Out of the NBA. Jay Rosenstein and Syl Sobel are the authors of Boxed Out of the NBA, remembering the Eastern Professional Basketball League. Uh, how much common knowledge is there of the Eastern League today? Um, in Pennsylvania, in, uh, in particular, where most of the teams are located, uh, I would say there's a whole generation of people who grew up during the 1950s and 60s and early 70s who uh, absolutely adore the league. And, and that would be in towns like Scranton and Wilkes-Barre and Allentown and Hazleton and Sunbury. Uh, and then, of course, there are teams across the river in Camden and down below Philadelphia in, in Wilmington. So um, I would say it would be a, a fairly well-known league in eastern Pennsylvania. There were cities like Harrisburg and Johnstown, uh, Berwick even, that had um, brief flings. They had teams for a few years in the league. But it really is a, uh, I wouldn't say a relic, but it was one of the, uh, it was a great moment when uh, small town Pennsylvania had access to really high quality professional basketball. Hey, and Phil, um, uh, there's even right now a uh, Facebook uh, page, you know, page, page, Facebook group with like, what, 1,000 members, Phil, uh, Sylvan? It's like 1,600 last I looked. Yeah, and they love being able to go back in time to when they were kids, when they were kids with their parents, going to the games. Um, we were just, we just love seeing those numbers go up. Are, th are there film and video recordings of games that people can go and watch? Oh, we, 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 we we're trying to find them because, uh, I mean, I'll jump ahead. And the next step that Jay and I hope to do is to take this, our book, and adapt it into a documentary film. We are looking for... Uh, video recordings, film actually, Super 8. We have found two personal collections, I'd say very small collections, of people who took their Super 8 cameras to games in the 70s and recorded some parts of it. But we haven't been able to find any full-length uh, recordings of, uh, of games. Now, we do have some audio recordings of games in the Scranton CYC, and the Kingston Armory in Wilkes-Barre, uh, which are absolutely terrific because they give you the crowd noise and you get the enthusiasm and the whole sense of being at a Scranton Miners versus Wilkes-Barre Barons game in the late 60s or early 70s, which was really, really a big deal back then. Um, and actually, uh, part of one of those recordings is a game in which Jim Beheim, now the Syracuse University basketball coach, played for Scranton, and uh, one of the newspapers in Syracuse found out about the recordings and played some of the recordings when they interviewed Coach Bayheim, and just the look on his face 
hearing the announcer say, and there goes Jimmy Beheim streaking down the lane for a layup and just the smile on his face. So really, this is a great bit of nostalgia. There were some great players in the league, and it brings back memories not only for the fans, but also for the for the men who played in it. And, and Phil, I researched this also, and um, I discovered to our loss that I think it might have been WNEP-TV, Wilkes-Barre Scranton, had great film for years, and then came Hurricane Agnes, and it all went down the, <laughs> down the sink. Um, it, it, it's, it's, when I heard that, I, I almost, uh, I almost uh, couldn't, couldn't continue for the next 10 minutes. Now, this league was created after World War II in the late 1940s. Uh, you described that time period as a gold rush type of environment. Why? Why, why were there so many basketball leagues being created during this time? Um, it, a great combination of circumstances. Uh, one was the end of World War II. Uh, people were feeling good, optimistic for the first time in five years. They had a little money in their pockets. They wanted to enjoy life. So they were looking for entertainment. Two, a lot of young men were coming back from the war. And many of them had played basketball in college before they went away to the war. And now they were looking for an opportunity to play basketball professionally or semi-professionally. Uh, and, and, and three, basketball, college basketball at this time, particularly in New York City and in Philadelphia with the Big Five, uh, was getting very popular. It was the game. Um, people loved college basketball. And now sports entrepreneurs are trying to kind of jump into that and take it to the next level. So professional basketball, organized professional basketball is really getting started in this era. So you've got a bunch of minor leagues and semi-pro leagues all around Pennsylvania, all around New York, all around Connecticut. Every state had them. Um, and you have a couple of pro leagues that are kind of getting off the ground. And the people, the entrepreneurs and small town sports promoters who formed the Eastern League saw the snitch kind of in between the rough and tumble semi-pro leagues and the major professional leagues where they could act, what they hoped to, to do was act as a farm system for the major leagues that were forming. So that was the, that was the original intent behind the Eastern League. And interestingly enough, it formed in April, 1946 six weeks before the Basketball Association of America, which later became the NBA. So for many, many years, while the Eastern League and its successor, the Continental Basketball Association, were around, they advertised themselves as the oldest professional basketball league in the United States, and that was accurate by six weeks. Who were the men who organized the Eastern League? Um, it was a collection of guys who had owned teams in um, uh, other cities, particularly Hazleton. Hazleton appears to have been the, the, the genesis, the, where the Eastern League was born. Hazleton and Wilkes-Barre. One of the, the leaders was a guy named Eddie White, who was very well known as an entrepreneur uh, of the Wilkes-Barre Barons basketball team. Um, and he had been a former player himself who had played on barnstorming teams and organized the Barons and various. There was a New York, Pennsylvania uh, semi-pro league. 
and he had been involved in that and he wanted to organize something kind of a notch better so he had actually hoped to get the barons into one of the uh major professional leagues at the time called the american basketball league uh but had been denied a franchise so apparently he and a guy named harry rudolph who later became the second commissioner of the Eastern League and Bill Morgan, who was a newspaper man in Hazleton and other entrepreneurs in Reading and uh, I believe in Allentown uh, got together and formed their own league. Interestingly enough, Eddie White and the Wilkes-Barre Barons won the uh, initial championship the first year of the, of the Eastern League. And then they bolted to the ABL, which I guess decided that the, the Barons were good enough to play in their league. But then Eddie came back and brought the Barons back to the Eastern League. And for many, many years, the Barons and the Scranton Miners were two of the, the main mainstays of the league. So the 1940s and 50s, what types of arenas were they playing in? Um, I can tell you about some of the arenas, not so much from the 40s. Well, maybe 40s, 50s and early 60s. Um, small gyms. Um, there's one gym that we've always love uh, Sunbury, Sunbury High School gym. It had a wall at one end of the court that basically you couldn't, you couldn't go more than like three or four inches before you had to, you know, shoot the ball directly up. It was, there was no, no uh, uh, level of, of, uh, of give for that back, back of that, uh, that part of the, uh, the, uh, the gym. Uh, also, on the other side of the gym was a stage that the players sat on, and it was like interfered in various ways with the game. And players would say that uh, they, um, uh, um, basically, just they, they had to run around to, to get down the court. Um, also, the the uh, gym still in the sixties in the sixties had the half moon uh, backboard. And some of the players in that era, uh, George uh, Bruns, uh, especially, I remember saying, how, how can they still have a half moon um, uh, a basket? Uh, and then the other great gym that, that uh, has all kinds of stories is the um, Kingston Armory. Kingston Armory was massive. This is Kingston being near Wilkes-Barre, basically, and massive, massive armory. And it was so cold in the winter, winter games uh, that, you know, people were huddling up together with, uh, at, in the stands at the, uh, at the uh, armory. Uh, John Cheney, um, he once said that, yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta have heat to, you know, keep the heat here somehow. Um, and here's one of the, the funniest uh, angles to this thing. The Wilkes-Barre opponents, um, for the first time, people who hadn't been, players who hadn't been there before, they were shocked to find out that there was only one shower in one shower room for both teams. And you ended up, at the end of the game, players scrambling to get to be the first one into the line to get into the uh, shower, get under the, uh, the shower head. Um, it's 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 just a, a, a crazy uh, crazy thing, but uh, you know part part of the Eastern League uh, history. And, you know, Phil, and, and one of the things I remember 
uh, when, you know, we used to go, Jay and I used to go to the CYC, and, and this was in the early 60s when we started. People smoked back then uh, heavily uh, in arenas. And there used to be this haze kind of hanging over the CYC uh, from all of the smoke. And uh, I gather every gym in the league was like that. They're all small high school gyms, smoke filled. And one of the characteristics, uh, you know, the, the, the stands, the sidelines, as Jay was saying, were, were so close to the playing court that visiting players and referees had to be very careful about getting too close to the sideline because sometimes the hometown fan would trip them as they were running down the sideline. Bayheim talked about that, and, and Dick Bavetta, a Hall of Fame NBA referee who got to start in the Eastern League, he very well remembers. You had to keep one eye on the fans in the sideline because if you made a call they didn't like, some fan would stick out a leg and try to trip you as you're running down the sideline. That was all part of the local flavor of the league. It, it was fun, but it was, and let's I, I keep emphasizing, this was big-time basketball. These were players who were excellent, excellent players, but for a variety of reasons, uh, including how, how few opportunities there were in the NBA at the time, uh, there wasn't room for them in the, in, in the NBA, so they're playing weekends in the Eastern League. Uh, talk more about that because you, you mentioned that uh, you know early on the NBA had just a small number of teams, and so as you said, there, there are a few opportunities for people to get paid to play basketball. Uh, what did it mean for these communities and, and for the fans to be able to see that quality of player at, in, their, in their towns? I think those of us who grew up with the Eastern League are realizing more and more what an incredible privilege we had. Uh, as, as you were saying, for most of the 1950s and early 60s, there were 10 or fewer teams in the NBA, and the rosters had 10 tops 12 players. So you're talking 80 to 100 players uh, in the NBA. That's not a lot of spots. In addition to that, there was a quota. Uh, everyone acknowledges it. Well, almost everyone acknowledges that there was an unwritten quota on African-American players. The NBA broke its color line in 1950. It included four, four African-American players. After that, as one author uh, described it, it was Noah-like. Uh, African-Americans were allowed in the league two by two, no more than two per team. This was for most of the 1950s. Well, there are a lot of great African-American players who are just starting to play in major college programs, but especially playing at HBCUs. And their opportunity to play came in the Eastern League. So while the Eastern League, uh, you know, is about, or the NBA had maybe two black players per team, no more than 20 players in the league for most of the 50s and then even into the early 60s, there was still an informal quota. Um, the Eastern League by the mid-1950s was pretty much 50-50. Uh, and by the early 1960s, it was a predominantly African-American league. So you had many great players, really great players. Uh, Hal Lear, Wally Choice, Dick Gaines, Tommy Hemans, Sherman White, who uh, Jay can explain later, was apart uh, from the NBA for other reasons. Some of the top really some of the top players in the world at the time, they're playing in Hazleton and Scranton and in Sunbury because there wasn't room for them in the NBA. And, you know, I, I don't know that at the time we appreciated how great an opportunity this was to see some great players, but as time goes on, we realize, wow, we're seeing guys who would have been NBA players, some of them, many of them, I would say NBA stars, 
if they had been given that opportunity. So it gave small towns like ours uh, a taste of big time pro basketball because there wasn't cable back then. There was maybe a Sunday NBA game of the week on, on, on one of the networks. But we were seeing some of the best players in the country and we loved it. And the communities were just rabid when it came to supporting their fans. I mean, there was nothing like a, a Scranton Miners, Wilkes-Barre Barons game at the CYC or at the Kingston Armory. People were really, really involved. And, you know, they, they talked about it was a physical league. There were fights on the floor. There were fights in the stands, too. And it was just a it, it, it was a, a fun, exciting uh, environment. And, and it really, I think it did a lot for, um, uh, for, for for the small towns. It made them feel like they had something that made them big time. How, how much and of the one of the uh, things that um, I recall from our our childhood was staying after the game to hang around with the players. The players would talk to the kids. Um, um, my father, who took me to the game, Sills' father took him to the games. Um, they very appreciated that, you know, the the the, the black players um, mixing with the white uh, small town white white uh, um, fans. It, it was just a feel good feeling from from you know from the very beginning. And uh, this, you know, goes. I, I remember not only that, but then on Monday morning, going to the uh, going to school, and first thing I know is we're on, we're talking Eastern League before school starts. Um, it, it was just uh, such a, a feel good um, uh, way of living at that time. <laughs> now today we're used to basketball players uh, making contracts worth millions of dollars. What did players in the Eastern League in the 1950s get paid? Uh, 35 bucks to start each game, maybe 50 if they were pretty good. Uh, good players got uh, $150, I think. Uh, people like, well, uh, one of the person, people, people I want to mention, uh, Bill Spivey, people like uh, this Bill Spivey uh, and some others got up into like the 200s maybe. I don't know, but uh, that, that's pretty much about it per game. But but back back then, I mean, what's interesting is is um, that was not bad money. I mean, they played 28 games a year, and then if they were lucky, they, they played a few playoff games. So you know, for a star like Hallier, who was making you know 200 bucks a game, um, and Hallier had a great nickname, King Hal King Lear. I love that King Lear, and he was getting 200 bucks a game. So he plays 28 games a year, that's about 5,600 dollars, and then he's got a full time job working for the city of, of Philadelphia. Uh, as a, as a, a, a manager, um, uh, he's making more money uh, than he would in the NBA, where a player's making seven thousand a year, maybe. Um, so you know, a lot of players. I mean, it's hard for us to think about now in the current generation, but for a lot of players, particularly those who had family, there was a, there was a, a a financial calculation that they could make more working a full time job, uh, particularly if they're a teacher, coach. Um, then playing in the Eastern League on weekends, um, and then shuttling back Sunday night to get back to their to their to their weekday week weekday job, uh, they make more money that way than if they were in the NBA. Plus, they were getting a jump start, a head start on their career. Um, so, so it made sense economically for them to play in the Eastern League. 
Now, in the book, you tell the story about how a team in Lancaster was paying its players in meat. Well, that, you know, John Chaney was, was and I miss him, and, and may he rest in peace. John Chaney is one of the great storytellers of all time. And and, and that that's the story he told, uh, that the Lancaster team, was it Lancaster or Lebanon? Because uh, the Lebanon, I believe, briefly had it. It was Lancaster, I think. And, and, and he said they were getting paid in rolls of bologna. And I don't know whether it was true or apocryphal, but it was hilarious. And I could hear John Cheney's laugh, and he had such an infectious laugh when he's telling that story. And he said, we used to, we used to kid those guys as they were running up the court, you know, that, that, that are going to get paid. If they make that layup, they're going to get an extra roll of bologna. And he's laughing. And, and he said that was that was that's true. He 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 said that that's the honest truth that they were paying the players and me. Quite possible, I don't doubt it. Jay, who who was your favorite player when you were growing up? Uh, no doubt, Tommy Hemans. Um, Tommy Hemans, six foot seven, played at Niagara University. Um, he could have played for the St. Louis Hawks. Uh, he he was a. Uh, 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 Picked by by the Hawks in the uh, you know the draft, uh, there was some kind of a contract uh, problem that he did not like, and he left that to, uh, to to play in the Eastern League, and he was, I think, just an amazingly good scorer and uh, rebounder. He's like number one, two, or three in scoring in the league, and number one, two, three, four, or five in, in, in rebounds in, in league history, I'm saying. Um, he, and a good guy, a very good guy, smart guy. He uh, had very uh, uh, good jobs in the New York uh, school system, very high up. Uh, and he's still, he's still with us. Uh, we, I've talked to him multiple times. Great, great player. Um, if, if I only can name one, I, will, I would name Tommy Hemans. Sil, how about you? And, and Who was your favorite player? And just to go back, and, and I mean, I, I definitely second what Jay said about Tommy Hemans, who's just a class act. Tommy became the uh, head, the director of the New York City Public School Association. Public yes, School so, so that's what I meant, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, he was the top uh, athletic administrator in the New York City public school system. Uh, ju just a class act. Uh, and even now in his 80s, he's the director of Habitat for Humanity in a small town in the northern neck of Virginia. I mean, he's just, and, and, and I'm going on an aside and I'll circle back to your question, Phil, but what we found out, you know, and we were kids growing up watching these guys play basketball, how many of them, now that we've got to talk to them as we're adults, what wonderful careers they had as teachers and coaches and businessmen and community leaders. They were all really solid citizens, uh, intelligent, committed to public service, committed to teaching. Uh, you could go on and on and on with the number of players who became coaches, starting with uh, John Chaney and, and, and Jim Beheim, who were Hall of Fame coaches, and Howie Landa, who's like the all-time winning as junior college coach, uh, goes on and on and on and on. Bill Green, who was a menacing figure in the Eastern League, is, is a legendary high school principal in New York City. John Mathis, uh, not the singer Johnny Mathis, but the basketball player Johnny Mathis, still coaching in the Bronx, George Bronze coaching in, 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 in community college. I mean, on and on and on. Anyway, my favorite player, Swish McKinney. What a great name. What a great player. Uh, Sonny Hill was once interviewed, and he was asked, who was the 
were there any players in the Eastern League who uh, were, were really, really good, but no one knows about? And he named Swish McKinney. And Swish McKinney never went to college, or he did go to college after his basketball career was over. Swish, at 16 years old, grew, he grew up in Oakland, California. Uh, he was told by the high school principal, you've completed every class we have. He was innately just very, very smart with, I guess, a real gift for math, as we'll find out later. And uh, at 16, they said, you've completed all of our courses, you gotta leave. So at 16, I guess, junior year, uh, he doesn't have a chance to play basketball in high school. Um, he ends up in the army and he gets assigned to um, Panama where he is put in charge of an athletic facility. So Swish spends his time shooting baskets for eight, 10 hours a day, playing pickup games and just perfecting his craft, perfecting his craft. Uh, he becomes an all army player. He plays uh, on a team, I think coached by Bobby Knight, gets selected for the 1964 uh, Pan American uh, basketball team with some of the top college players, including Willis Reed. Uh, and represents the United States uh, in the Pan American Games, comes back, gets a tryout with the St. Louis Hawks back then. Uh, he said, I looked around, I counted the number of black players. They said, oh, I'm not gonna make this team. Ends up in the Eastern League, becomes the rookie of the year. Just a fabulous shooter, six foot two, quick, strong, incredible mid-range to long-range shooter. And one of the great lines uh, we heard, Jay interviewed George Blaney who was a former NBA player, Eastern League player, and a longtime college coach at a number of uh, universities, including Holy Cross. And George Blaney once said, you know, if you go through life with the name of Swish, you better be able to act uh, to, 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 to live up to it. And uh, the thing about Swish is, is he really did. He was just an amazing shooter. Uh, he averaged, I think, 39 points a game one year. And the guy could just score. He played for Wilmington, he played for Scranton, and he played in Binghamton, got a job with IBM, uh, discovered they had a real facility for computers. Uh, after his career was over, moved back to Oakland, went to college, got his uh, undergraduate and master's degree in, in, in computer technology, became a uh, community college professor, uh, worked in banks in IT, and actually uh, went overseas in various State Department programs coach basketball overseas in Africa. So uh, again, another story of a little known basketball player, but if Swish McKinney was around today, you know about him. He would be one of the great shooters, one of the great scorers in the NBA. Now Swish also is known for having his own radio show that everybody loved. And um, it was uh, the the you know send off uh, uh, from uh, from each show was um, uh, always um, oh, oh let me do always, try to think always remember your ABCs always go with your ABCs always be cool and Swish was cool no doubt no doubt I. I I'm totally with Sil on, on, on Swish as, as, as one of the great characters. Now, throughout the book, uh, there are some prominent names that people today would recognize. Uh, you mentioned a few of them. John Chaney, of course, is a longtime Temple University basketball coach. Uh, Jack Ramsey played for Sunbury. Hubie Brown, who's a longtime coach and broadcaster. Uh, Jim Beheim with the Syracuse University. Uh, so it does seem that the league has uh, propelled people into larger careers. 
Oh, absolutely. Bobby Weiss played for Wilmington for a couple of years, went on to be a longtime NBA player and coach. Bob Love, uh, terrific NBA player. Uh, Butterbean. Uh, Paul Silas. Um, Jay, who am I? Oh, Dick Bavetta and Joey Crawford got their start as referees in the Eastern League. Jay, who, who, who else am I forgetting? Um, who else? Um, Julius McCoy. Um, uh, Paul Arizon. Yeah. One, um, of, one of the 75 best all-time NBA players ended his career. And, and again, this is, this is a great product of, of that era. The, the Philadelphia Warriors, who Arizon played for, uh, were moving to San Francisco. Well, Arizon was near the end of his career, and he had a good job with IBM. Well, he didn't want to leave his, his IBM job in Philadelphia because he knew he was going to be retiring soon. So he did try. He, when the Warriors moved to San Francisco, he stayed east. He worked for IBM, and he played for the Camden Bullets in the Eastern League for many years, was, a, was the most valuable player one year and one of the top scorers in the three years he played in the league. So... Uh, you know, so, so not only did some players launch their careers, start in the Eastern League and work their way up, but many, uh, a number, quite a number like Arizon, uh, ended their careers in the Eastern League too. And there are a number, you know, and, and, and there are a number of great ABA players. Some of the, 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 the best players in the early years of the ABA were Eastern Leaguers. Because when the ABA started in 1967, it took a whole bunch of East, like 25 to 30 Eastern Leaguers. That kind of was the beginning of the end of the Eastern League. But Laverne Tart, Willie Somerset, Hank Whitney, Willie Morrell, Larry Jones, a lot of great uh, uh, ABA players. They started. They were Eastern Leaguers who made the jump over to the ABA. And you mentioned uh, Dick and Bavetta, who was, uh, of course, is well known as an NBA referee. Uh, but he, he uh, played or he... Uh, refereed in the Eastern League. And you tell the story in the book about how he had to escape out of a window to get to get yeah. away from a hometown crowd. Tell that story. Yeah, you're, you're taking, I, I, this is exactly what I was planning to, uh, to offer um, when I heard the name Dick Bavetta. Uh, I, I'm, we're friendly with Dick. He's a great guy. Uh, still, uh, you know, jokes and, and, and just, just a really, really good guy. Um, yeah, so this was in, in Sunbury, Pennsylvania, I'm pretty sure. Dick, at the end of the game, calls, uh, calls, you know, the the, uh, uh, the uh, Sunbury Mercuries uh, lose the game based on this one call. And I must have been in, in a, uh, a, a, a post-league uh, game for this. So anyhow... Um, this happens all of a sudden fans start rushing to get to the refs. Uh, Bavetta is able to work his way down into the lower level of the, uh, the, um, the, the gym area and so on. And, you know, he hears, the, uh, you know, pe people outside banging on the door and so on. Um, he looks around and he finds a milk box. He just happens to see a milk box. And he uses that to climb out the back of the, of the building. And he's, you know, so, so thankful about that. Um, he gets into his car, starts driving, and 
the policemen who, or the policemen, A, were waiting to, in the front for him to come out, but B, um, waiting uh, to get into his car. So he gets into his car and he slowly moves out and the, and the, and the cop stops him and says, and he thought, oh my God, this, is, this isn't gonna happen, gonna work. Uh, well, it turns out he says just to Dick, hey, you know, your, your, your light isn't on. Uh, you know, you've you got, got to put your lights on. You know? So Dick puts his, puts his lights on, starts moving away, and the policeman says, hey, wait a minute. Oh, oh it was a New York license plate. That's what, that's what uh, uh, got, gave things away. So he had to tear out of there. And he, he says, because, and the policeman was saying, go get the guy. Um, that's one of his, his favorite stories. And then he was very, very thankful to get, get home in one piece. There's also the story about how fans, they nailed Art Hill House in the men's room. It, I, gosh, I love that story. Um, now this wasn't the Eastern League technically. This was the, the New York, Pennsylvania League, which was kind of a, a, a semi-pro league that was a precursor to the Eastern League. But yes, this was the game uh, between Wilkes-Barre and Pittston, I believe. And, and, and the guy who told me the story, God bless him, Whitey Van Nita. And again, I'm going into an aside, but I, I like to meander and then get back to the point. Uh, Whitey is now 99 years old, possibly 100. Uh, he played in the Eastern League and then went into the NBL, which merged with the BAA, and became the NBA. So he is, as far as I know, the oldest living former NBA player. And uh, Whitey was 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 one of the star players of the Eastern League in its first few years, leading scorer its first season. But Whitey likes to tell the time about when the Wilkes-Barre team came up to Pittston and they played in some old ramshackle wooden gym and the Pittston fans and, and, and Art, Whitey and Art Hillhouse played for, 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 for the Wilkes-Barre team. And before the game started, Art, I guess Hillhouse was the center, six foot seven, went into the bathroom and that's all the Pittston fans needed. Somehow, some of them had a nail and a hammer and they nailed the wooden doors to the wooden door frame and nailed him into the men's room. And, 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 and the Wilkes-Barre team had to get someone to drive down to Wilkes-Barre, get a crowbar, and pry the guy out. And he missed the whole first half, and they got him out for the second half. So, so this is what I mean by the, 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 the semi-pro leagues being kind of really rough and tumble, and the Eastern League was kind of a step up from that. It was supposed to be a little more organized, and a little more genteel, and a little more professional. So, so far as I know, I, I, during our research, we did not hear of any Eastern League players getting, a lot, getting nailed into the bathroom. There were fights. Uh, but there was never anyone nailed into a bathroom. Now, the 1950s, there are a lot, a lot of issues relating to gambling and point shaving. Uh, Jay, what, how did that affect the Eastern League? Oh, yeah, definitely. This is very, very important for the Eastern League. In 1951, there was a college basketball gambling scandal. Uh, 30, 31, 32 players in the college ball, uh, including the best player in the country, Sherman White. These 30-plus players were found guilty, I guess you could say, of, of taking bribes for gamblers who wanted to, uh, to fix games. And these were young kids. They were poor kids, players who, you know, 
didn't think much that, you know, taking some, you know, $50 here and hundred dollars there from a, from a, a gambler didn't think it would, you know, be a big deal. Well, it sure was because those players got many of those players got jail time, prison time, uh, other penalties. And worst of all for uh, these players was that everyone involved in, in these, in, you know, these uh, dealings, everyone involved was banned from the NBA for life. So great players were banned for life. It's amazing. Again, Sherman White went to Long Island University, uh, expected to be picked by the Knicks in uh, an upcoming draft. Uh, he, he would never be able to play for uh, in the NBA. Uh, but what happened? Well, the Eastern League was there. So Sherman White goes to the Eastern League, starts playing he was hitting 25, 30 points a game. Great players saw, you know, knew this. They were, they were friends of, of, of uh, his or whatever. And they went, you know, we brought in great, great players to the Eastern League based on being banned from the NBA. Uh, a couple of more exam examples. One is that uh, a couple of years after uh, the Sherman White situation, a player named Jack Molinas, uh, went to uh, Columbia University, uh, graduated, starts playing for the uh, Fort Wayne Pistons. Now you'd know them as the uh, uh, Detroit Pistons. And um, he got banned for life for betting on his team, his Fort Wayne team. Uh, and that was a violation. He also got banned for life from the NBA. And here's the third example uh it's very sad we, you know so and i are always talk about this uh bill spivey seven footer out of kentucky he was expected to be the best center in the country after george mikan and before wilta still chamberlain um but what happened um he was accused by two of his teammates uh, that he, he, was, he was gambling. They said so. Bill Spivey said, no, I have never been dead, had any problems with this. I never got involved. Spivey did a, a lie detector test, all kinds of things. Bill Spivey should have, well, it's still a question mark about that, but basically Bill Spivey with no indications of being found guilty of anything um, Bill Spivey was banned for the for from the NBA for life and he he, he lived with that missing uh, uh, the, basically him and Chamberlain he really wanted to play against Chamberlain in the NBA but one thing is is, is uh, just to add to that in 1960 I believe or 61 there was a an exhibition game that was organized in uh, Milton, Connecticut. And Bill Spivey and Will Chamberlain went at it. Bill Spivey was about nine or 10 years older at the at time. He was like 30-ish. Uh, Will Chamberlain was like 23. 
And for an exa uh, an exhibition game, uh, you know, you might think, eh, it's just a little, uh, you know, play around. The two of them, Bill Spivey said, the two of them really went at each other. It was a tough, tough thing. Uh, both of them had great scores. They, they both played, uh, got 30 points and 25 rebounds. And that was his one and only time he had the uh, chance to play against Will Chamberlain. Was the style of play in, in the Easter League different from that in the NBA? Uh, y yes, it was. It was a, a, a faster-paced game. It was a more uh, high-flying, above-the-rim game. Uh, it was a very physical game. Um, in, in, in fact, uh, Ray Scott, who was a great NBA player in his own right and who played for three years in the Eastern League before he went to the NBA, uh, he said, and, and, and Ray later became a coach for the Detroit Pistons, uh, he said that the Eastern League doesn't get the credit it deserves for paving the way for the uh, modern uh, professional basketball game. He said that, uh, you know, while the uh, NBA was playing a more structured passing-oriented game in the mid to late 1950s, the Eastern League, in, in large part because of a large number of African-American players, particularly from HBCUs, was playing a faster, above-the-rim type of game uh, years before uh, it, it, it went to the NBA. Um, and uh, so the Eastern League really uh, did kind of play an important part in the evolution of, of, of the professional game. The other thing is the Eastern League had the three-point shot. Now, it didn't start, it didn't initiate the three-point shot. That started in the early 1960s in the short-lived uh, American Basketball League that uh, Abe Saperstein of the Harlem Globetrotters had started. But that league only lasted 1960 to 62. Um, the Eastern League in 64 uh, adapted the three-point shot. So they were playing with the three-point shot years before the NBA was, even before the ABA was. And the ABA often gets credit for, for, for starting the, the three-pointer, but actually it was the, the Eastern League that, that, that really made it popular before the, uh, before the ABA did. So uh, there, there was definitely an evolution that was going on. I mean, we were seeing scores in the Eastern League. We were seeing scores in the 130s, you know, 140 to 3, 140 to 135, yeah, way before they were playing, you know, high-scoring games in, in, in the NBA. And that pace... Uh, I, I, I think that pace was adapted by the ABA, and they really saw how popular it was, and the Eastern League had to adjust. I mean, and the NBA had to adjust. Now, the, the ABA was established in the late 1960s. How would that affect the Eastern League going into the 70s? Well, it pulled a lot of the top talent. I mean, uh, a lot of the top players went into the ABA, 25 to 30 uh, in the first two years of the ABA. And, you know, while that was going on, uh, you now had more teams, professional teams. You had eight to ten teams in the ABA. Uh, the Eastern League, the NBA was now starting to expand. So now you had 20 to 25 professional teams. Uh, so instead of room for 100 players, there's like 200 to 250 players playing professionally in the two top leagues. So, you know, you still had really, really good players in the, uh, in the Eastern League. Stan Pavlik is an example. Wait Bellamy. Swish stayed in the Eastern League because he loved what he was doing in Binghamton. Uh, but you didn't have the depth 
uh, of really good players that the Eastern League had in its heydays in the 50s and, and, and early 60s. So the combination of kind of a, a, a lower level of talent uh, across the board, um, more uh, accessibility to NBA and ABA games on television and cable television, uh, and the economy, particularly in the 70s, which was now starting to get depressed. And in fact, you know, these small uh, Pennsylvania towns were kind of becoming part of the Rust Belt. Uh, the Eastern League started to decline in popularity um, and it became tougher and tougher for teams to survive. And now you saw the league starting to, to, to fade, players starting to, to uh, uh, leave and teams starting to fall. So that was kind of the beginning beginning of the end of the Eastern League till it kind of morphed and reinvented itself as the Continental Basketball Association, which instead of being in small towns was in larger mid-sized cities with larger arenas and corporate sponsorship. The small towns in the Eastern League just couldn't survive that anymore. How does the Basketball Hall of Fame treat the Eastern League? Uh, Jay, I'll take the first one. Well, it, it, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, and we've tried. Uh, we have tried. We've reached out on several occasions. And, and many of the players, you know, these players are great players, and they don't get the recognition they deserve. And several have said, just have an exhibit, something about the Eastern League. But the uh, officials we've talked with at the Basketball Hall of Fame uh, say they don't have a, a room. Exhibition space is tight. They don't do anything on minor league basketball. So, you know, we've tried. We're going to keep at it. Um, I, I think part of the problem is that, you know, the book came out right at the start or in the middle of the pandemic and museums were struggling and suffering. And now we're hitting them with, hey, how about starting a whole new exhibit? Well, they're just trying to stay afloat because people weren't going to their museum. So maybe now if uh, would be a better time to, to go back to them. We're going to keep trying. And if people in Pennsylvania want to keep trying, hey, the Eastern League is a really important part of the, the evolution of professional basketball. It, it in some ways served the purpose of the, of the Negro Leagues for baseball. Uh, it, as we just said, uh, helped evolve the, the, the game of professional basketball. Um, it was serving a very important purpose that's getting totally lost, particularly as this generation of former Eastern Leaguers leaves us. So while they're still around, uh, it would be great if they could get some recognition for the part they played in basketball history. Now, there are a lot of colorful characters in, in your book, uh, and you mentioned uh, there's one coach named Elmer Ripley who was known for falling asleep on the bench. Who is he? Oh, God. Uh, Elmer Ripley's a, a legendary former coach from the way, way back. I think we're going 20s or 30s. Uh, Charlie Rosen, who's a great basketball writer, who played briefly in the Eastern League and then coached in the Continental Basketball Association with his good friend um, uh, Phil Jackson. Uh, Charlie uh, played briefly on the Scranton Miners while Elmer Ripley was the coach. Now, Elmer had coached uh, college ball at a number of schools, including Georgetown, where Jay and I went. Uh, so, uh, you know, just a little plug for the Hoyas. Uh, but he was like in his 70s or 80s by the time Art Pachter hired him to coach Scranton. And uh, I, I guess, you know, he needed a nap or a little refreshment. 
refresher during the game and starts nodding off on the bench. And and I guess Art Packer saw him falling asleep. So Elmer didn't complete the season as the coach. But but Art told us he, he, he was hiring this guy because at the time he was a well-known coach. He just didn't realize how old he was and kind of, you know, passed his, passed his, his expiration date. <laughs> Were there significant rivalries between some of the teams? Oh, Scranton and Wilkes-Barre, definitely. Um, who else? Uh, Scranton and uh, Wilkes-Barre was huge. I, I suspect, I, I, I'm trying, I, I think Hazleton and, it, it was either Hazleton and, and Williamsport or Williamsport and Sunbury, which are actually fairly close to each other, you know, up and down the Susquehanna. Uh, I think Sunbury and Williamsport had a pretty good rivalry. Uh, but Williamsport was pretty much out of the league by the time Jay and I were, were, were involved. They were just sort of leaving. But I think back in the day, that was a pretty good rivalry. Um, you know, there are eight teams in the league. Uh, we all, they all played each other. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, Hazel, the, the scranton Wilkesbury thing is the one we grew up with. And, you know, on, on the uh, Eastern League Facebook page, Jay was talking about Wilkesbury fans and Scranton fans all talking about their memories of those games. I mean, play, they would throw batteries at the players. It, it was ugly. Uh, there were fights. There, you know, and these guys played each other. So the funny thing about the Eastern League is a lot of these guys are coming from New York City. And uh, they commute together. You know, they meet at, at somewhere in, 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 in Harlem or somewhere in, in Midtown. And they figure out right, who's going to Sunbury, who's going to Scranton. And they go in cars. And you have players from different teams playing, you know, carpooling together uh, in in the same cars, which was fine on the way to the game. But sometimes these guys got in fights on the way, you know, during the game. So I can imagine what happened. I mean, there were stories told. Someone said, no, you can't ride back with us. you got to find another ride. Because they'd gotten in a fight during the game. So, uh, you know, this is just part, again, of the, uh, of the Eastern League's lore. But these were intense games. These were players who had something to prove. Um, they were really good. They were top-notch. A lot of them played in the tournaments, you know, the Baker League in Philadelphia, the Rucker League in New York City. Uh, they played with NBA players. And here they are playing, you know, in small towns. They had something to prove, so they're playing a very tough physical game. Um, and that carried over onto the floor. And in terms of scranton Wilkesbarre, that was a rivalry that kind of grew up from the old Coaltown Baseball League. Scranton and Wilkesbarre were arch-arch rivals in the baseball leagues where, you know, each coal town, each coal company had its own team and they play each other. And Eddie White and um, Speed Maloney, who were the owners of the Barons and the, uh, the Miners, respectively, in the, in the, 19, uh, in the 1950s, they, uh, they staged that rivalry. They played it up. They carried it over and they maintained it. And even long after Eddie White and, uh, and Speed Maloney are out of the picture, uh, both franchises maintained that rivalry. So that was, that was a really good one. Hey, Phil, can I just elaborate a little bit on uh, what, what we said about the uh, carpools and so on? And, um, one of the most important things going in as, as an Eastern League player was you had to know, be able to drive or, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, stay up, may up late to uh, keep the driver uh, awake 
while you're going back to home. They were the players basically were driving from from and to New York, Philly, uh, you know, pretty much anywhere otherwise. And um, every Saturday night they did this. Every Sunday night they did this in the in the in the in the, um, in the uh, uh, games uh, during the week during the winter. And they'd get home at three or four in the morning, and uh, you know have to you know wake up to uh, to go to go to work the next day. And then you got this snow and the sleet um, issue. Um, Jim Beheim told us about how he would be driving to uh, back to Syracuse, but he could only go like five miles an hour, and he'd have to open the door to, to see if, you know, he's still on the, on the, on the road. Um, and, uh, Joe, Joe Lally, who's a baseball basketball player for, um, Scranton, uh, but, but he's a Scranton boy. He, he told uh, us that he almost got killed twice. He fell asleep twice going back, driving by himself, maybe after carpooling or not. Um, he, Almost got killed twice, um, and uh, you know, fortunately, he he, uh, he survived it. And we only have a so few anyhow, That's just, I think, another part of the the uh, Eastern League uh, that, that was was all the players would and, and fans st- still talk about, uh, you know, driving and crazy hours and so on. Well, we only have a few minutes left, but before we before we wrap up, I want to get one more story in here. In Wilkes-Barre, you, you tell a story about how they, they tilted the backboard when Whitey Von Nieta was in town. What was going on there? Well, Whitey Von Nieta's best shot, Whitey Von Nieta's best shot was a, a running hook shot where he banked it off the backboard. And like I said, Whitey was the top scorer in the Eastern League in its first season and terrific player. Well, Eddie White uh, owned the Barons at the time, and... Um, he had his uh, uh, maintenance guy. Uh, more, I'm using the word maintenance guy. There has to be a better word. Actually, the, the guy was oh, uh, the guy who became the legendary groundskeeper for for Kansas City. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm George. Anyway, he got his start working for Eddie White, and Eddie White used to say, "Look, Vanita is coming to town. I want you to tilt the backboard just a fraction so he can't hit his bank shots." So Whitey's playing, you know, against Wilkes-Barre, and he can't figure out every time he shoots his patented running hook shot why it's just missing. He's hitting it at the same spot in the backboard, but it's not going in. And after the season was over, Eddie White formed kind of a traveling barnstorming team, and he asked Whitey to play on it. And Whitey said, how come? He said, I probably shouldn't play on this team, Eddie. He said, because I never do a good job scoring when I'm playing against against the Barons of Oaksburg. And Eddie laughed and said, oh, that's because I have I have them tilt the backboard so you can't do your running hook shot. So uh, I guess he didn't tilt it when 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 Whitey played on his team. Uh, so that season, uh, Whitey found out. And I, the following year, he was gone. It was the following year uh, he had gotten an offer to play in the NBL. So he didn't have to worry about Eddie White tilting the backboard against him anymore. Well, we've been speaking with Sol Sobel and Jay Rosenstein. They are the authors of Boxed Out of the NBA, Remembering the Eastern Professional Basketball League. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. This yeah. yeah, yeah. thanks, Phil. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. 
Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.